Welcome to the Scottish Paranormal Podcast. I'm your host Chris and here we'll be delving into the multitude of strange occurrences that happen within Scotland and beyond. You can contact us with your accounts at the Scottish Paranormal Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on all social media channels and you can contact us by either means. Okay. I was just okay. saying I was trying to, I was trying to get rid of a light there just in my back of my head. It was making me look like just shiny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see it. <laughs> a couple of UFOs in the background. I need to do something about these lights. Right, ah, they, they, look, they, they, they look very they look interesting actually. <laughs> <laughs> listen, so thanks, thanks for coming on the show. Um uh looking forward to well, thank you for talk, inviting me. <laughs> looking forward to talk to you. I mean, I, I first heard the uh, um on as I said to you if you had the chat and stuff before we had a, a wee while back, um and I was listening to the Penny Royale podcast mm-hmm. and I, I did I did find all your insights quite interesting and um all the kind of knowledge you had and I, and I did think I need to talk to this guy one day. <laughs> but that's, uh, when we kind of, that's when we kind of contacted on Twitter and stuff like that as well. And the yeah, so uh, pretty good. So thanks. It's interesting on. because there's always like this this line like how do you get to know people? Uh because the guys in Penny Royal found me because I was actually doing things for the new Kirks, like, you know, uh, uh, Greg and Dana, like ah, I did, uh, they, they invited me during at the height of the pandemic was September 2020 uh, to do a talk about Hellier, which is the thing they've done, of course, and and Telema, which, because, you know, during the pandemic, I wrote a series of articles on Reddit of all places, yeah. and uh, they, they were interested in, in hearing more pretty much. And so, you know, we became friends, I did this thing, and then, you know, of course, Nathan was there, and then we became friends and we did i mean we did all the penny royal thing season one season two there's going to be season three as well uh it's crazy crazy how much stuff they be keep on covering uh you know somerset kentucky really is a weird place right? yeah. <laughs> I tell you that. uh, that's like a really really good podcast as well i've had i've had nathan on the show as well um a good chat to him as well i mean but yeah i mean it's, it's a really really good podcast um, yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. You would see, you know, season three, there's, there is writing in now. He's writing the book out of everything as well, by yeah. the way. And uh, it's the, the thing is that, you know, I'll, 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 no matter how long is the Penny Royal, I mean, it's quite a long listen if you go from, you know, from the beginning to the end. Yeah, yeah. It's still like, I would say it's like 5% of the things they've told me and 5 percent of the <laughs> yeah. things that you could tell about. It's, it's insanity. Right? Yeah. I, that, I mean, I never visited um, that, you know, Somerset. I mean, I've been in the US, US many times before the pandemic, but uh, I definitely would like to go and maybe see for myself what it feels to be there. It yeah. definitely feels like a weird place like a weird place right so an interesting thing though interesting fact where the appalachian mountain range that runs through there at one point did go through scotland and right through kind of yeah. europe right across yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i sometimes remember that yeah so basically yeah some of the weirdness comes up to to your mountains <laughs> as well i suppose yeah, totally yeah totally. yeah the great boundary fault you know, yeah, the great fault. is that what you said mark yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. One of the faults, like the one, the one that runs right up uh, into the, it's the Upper Highlands. The one that, that one that goes right up to the Cairngorms and stuff like that. And we'll talk about that later because it kind of ties into some of the stuff we're going to be talking about. Of course. Um, so listen, I'll, I'm just going to invite you in as well. Let me have a wee chat here. But um, this is uh, Marco Visconti, um, lifelong student of Western esoteric practices. Do you want to just tell us yeah. a little bit about yourself? 
Of course. Uh, so yeah, that's my name. Uh, I've been uh, I've been interested and f- at first, and then uh, a practicing uh, magician for well, I would say most of my life. I I found out about these practices when I was in my early teens, and you know I doubled with it during the the, the teens. It was this was was the nineties, right? Between you know literally the, the, the entire decade of the nineties, I was doubling with it, and then by the by the tail end of it, I sought out uh, initiation in um, what is called the AA or Argentum Astrum, which is one of uh, Alistair Crowley's orders. Uh, we'll, I guess we'll talk about it later. And then in time, I joined a bunch of other things, as you usually do. <laughs> uh, it's very easy if you're interested you know, in one group, in one practice, it's very easy to branch out. Um, and uh, I mean, that, like I said, that was like the late 90s, you know, 25 odd years later, uh, uh, here I am. Um, I've been, in more recent years, I've been involved, uh, very much, very much involved in OTO or Ordo Templi Orientis, which was yet another order um, that was, uh, it wasn't created, but it was uh, restructured and then expanded by Alistair Crowley. Um, I quit, I like, left the OTO in 2018 which is now already five years ago, which is almost five years ago. It's weird. It's weird about thinking about time with all the COVID stuff that happened recently. But yeah, um, that, and that's because I found a lot of, a lot of things that I didn't want to be involved with, you know, from rape allegations and maybe weren't allegations at all uh, to connections with the alt-right, the far-right, uh, all, you know, the entire spectrum. And I was like, you know, this is not for me. I mean, or rather, I really like the OTO system of, of, what, I mean, what you do there, and you know, little spoilers from maybe later. It's sort of a, a more magical Freemasonry. I, I mean, I'm in Freemasonry as well. You know, the classic Freemasonry you can join uh, everywhere in uh, in well, in the UK and well, and all over the world really. But you know, the OTO is is Freemasonry, but with magic and with with Telema, with Alistair Crowley in it. So I, I was really into it. Uh, so the system itself, I still like it. I don't like the people that run it, both here in the UK and worldwide. So that's why I left. And, you know, from that point onward, I went on and did my own thing. Um, I reactivated uh, one branch of the many Telemic Gnostic churches that are out there called Ecclesia Gnostica Universalis, uh, which I've been working with with a very selected few. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's an ongoing work. It's not so much a public work, like you can join the website, yeah, you can join, you can, you can wait, um, uh, go on the website, read what we are, what we do, but it's not really like an open uh, open doors uh, order. It's not like, for instance, the OTO, where you can just send an application, say, "Hey, I would like to join." Uh, since I, I, you know, I, I found out that that doesn't work. Like, you really need to know the person first for a long time uh, before deciding if you want to invite them for dinner. Let's put it like that, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's what we're doing there. Um, we might start doing more more open things. We, that was our um, original plan. But as you know, COVID happened, and for the last two years and a half, we've been we've been like working on ourselves. And uh, another thing that I've been doing, I've been well during the lockdowns, I started organizing an online magical community called Magic Without Tears, which is in fact uh, a reference to uh, the latest um, series uh, series of letters that, were, that then went organized in a book by Alistair Crowley called Magic Without Tears, which in itself, of course, it's a uh, a reference of mathematics without tears. It's a little bit of a you know tongue-in-cheek uh, joke there. And magic without tears, it's something that has been growing steadily. 
way it became more it became a way bigger beast than I thought it would be. Um, at the very beginning, we were like maybe twenty people together, like you know, trying to make sense of the lockdown times. Using Zoom was the first time we were using Zoom, right? Um, and uh, you know, uh, over the course of the pandemic, we ended up having hundreds and hundreds of people coming in and out. Uh, you know, at the, at the highest, we had two hundred. Almost, almost over 200, yeah, 200 something, uh, you know, uh, members all at once. And then, of course, you know, the world reopened. Uh, people don't want to be on Zoom anymore. Uh, people want to go out at the pub or just say, have a nice, really all real holiday. And now, I guess we're around 100 people. Uh, but the good thing is that it's very engaged, and uh, it's been a very good experience in the sense that, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning. I've been involved in lodges and groups and covens most of my life. And um, I know that a lot of people that never been into one of these groups might, might have a very, you know, almost like a, a rose tinted glasses idea of what it's like. But usually it's very few people um, with two or three that do all the work and the other people come along for the ride. Um, and that's it. It's always something very small. Right. Uh, even in the OTO in, in London, where I live, uh, the, the Ameth Lodge uh, of the OTO is named to be one of the biggest, if not the biggest lodge in the world. And it, 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 when I was a treasurer of the lodge, and I, like I said, I quit in 2018, so I don't know what it's like right now. But at the time, I, I had on my, you know, my members' roles 93 members, which is kind of a funny number because 93 is an important number for yeah. them. <laughs> of those 93 people, you would see maybe 20. <laughs> and that's it, right? Whereby, of course, you know, the, the, the idea of having a magical community, it, it's, it's, it's less, maybe less of a commitment because, you know, you, you join, you just you know, switch your computer on, you can be in your pajamas, you, you just love to engage, right? But we, every, all, um, all the members that we have, they're all, all engaged. And that means that you can do a lot of things. So we, you know, we run a lot of uh, experiments and scrying sessions. And, you know, we, I mean, I put together, um, let's say, a one magic one-on-one, -on -one, magic two-on-one course uh, where, you know, literally you could, people that never had any experience in practical magic could join and they did. And, you know, by the end of it, which is usually around for like three months, uh, they would have a solid understanding of what they need to do to do magic. What is magic? What do, how do you do it? Uh, also, you know, um, maybe dissipating a lot of ideas that people have about magic. Uh, it's, it's not Harry Potter, right? <laughs> like, uh, it's not Dungeons and Dragons either. Uh, maybe some Dungeons and Dragons things you can have at the same time. Uh, maybe not the Firebolts, unfortunately, uh, because we live in, in a very <laughs> mundane world. But um, you can have other kind of experiences, like, you know, invoking and evoking spirits of various kinds. So, you know, like, the thing is that the, the magical community really showed me that there's still a lot of people out there that really, really engage. And I would say, and then maybe that I'm gonna like put a put a stop on introducing myself there. What I notice is that um, online magical communities during the pandemic really showcase how important it is to give opportunities to people that maybe don't live in big cities or people that maybe have disabilities or maybe people just are shy uh, to just give them the opportunity to experience this. This, 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 these experiences, really, right? These, these practices. Something that I noticed, unfortunately, is that, you know, um, as the pandemic 
you know, disappeared from our daily discourse. Of course, my, I think it's still there. I had COVID twice and I'm suffer from long COVID. Like, so I, I, I still feel it in my lungs that it's still there. Yeah, right? I, had it, I had it about a uh, week and a half ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, unfortunately, you know, that's something that's going to be with us for a long time. Uh, but, you know, of course the world reopened as it's supposed, supposed to do. Uh, but what I noticed is that there's a, unfortunately a lot of uh, conferences or you know groups went back to do in person only. Mm-hmm. It, the problem is that they, doing this really leaves behind all those people that cannot join an in person event, and that's kind of bad if you ask me. So that's why I'm very happy that like every time that I'm doing it's still online, and as soon as you know if we'll be able to do. Uh, in-person events with uh, with the Ecclesiastical Universalis, I I already have uh, you know a streaming setup because the, the idea is that you know like you want I think it's important to give accessibility to the, because these practices are supposed to be for everyone. So um, that's me in a nutshell. I hope uh, I hope you introduced it. I'll, I'll, I'll let Mark go into the next question because I was going to he was going to ask about the magic without tears, but you've answered that already. I'd, I'd probably <laughs> say unless you want to add a bit. Yeah, one thing I was wondering about is you're saying about some of the invocations and how people maybe uh, be able to invoke or what sort of uh, what what are the highlights for people? What have people come away with and say this has been fantastic with uh, uh, with your system? So, well, the thing is, um, what I notice it's very it's very important is that uh, magic with the tears really is. Um, a way for people to have an interactive magical primer. Okay, by that I mean, like you, you, most of us who are interested in magic can go on to the local bookstore or on Amazon and buy a series of books uh, on magic, right? Like, and most of them are magical primers. I know that because I've been asked to write one and it's coming up next year, right? I wanted to write something about something completely different. And then, you know, the um, the commission agent was like, oh, I would rather like you to write an introductory uh, primer on magic. It's what sells, right? It makes sense. Um, the point is that often you read these books and you have no expectation <laughs> since you've never done it. And maybe, again, you've never been part of a group. So nobody, you've never had to speak with other people. You never maybe seen other people doing these rituals. You don't know what to expect. And what I notice is that a lot of people have wrong expectations, right? Because again, uh, just an, an example here. Um, one of the most basics, um, basic exercises or practices or rituals, it's the pentagram, are the pentagram rituals, right? Um, and if you read Crowley's uh, description of it, or maybe even Anke Israel Rigardi or other names, you know, important names that wrote about magic, they will tell you that, you know, as you become more and more familiar with these um, practices, like, I don't know, the the invocation will bring down the the heavenly host and you will see the angels, you know, with all their effulgent glory appear in front of you. Well, that means really is that you have to learn how to visualize. You have to learn how to become acquainted with your senses. You have to be, first of all, you have to also be, uh, have to learn that magic is not so much into knowing what to say or what's, uh, what gestures to do. It's also about breathing and fueling those gestures and those words with, with your life force, really. Uh, this life force has many names. Uh, prana is the one I like to use, coming from the Sanskrit and the Hindu tradition. But if you've done martial arts, you can think of it as ki or chi, right? You know, this is, this, this is, this is a similar idea. 
And all these practices of these rituals, in fact, they're not so dissimilar from martial arts. Uh, the, the aim is different. Martial arts, maybe they're, they're about, well, about self-defense or offense, and also about you know, mastery of self, while magical practices are about mastery of self. And by, the more you master yourself, the more you're able to be in control. Um, one term that we like to use is the to, to the descent, put yourself at the center of the elemental chaos and aspiring to your holy guardian angel. That's when your senses become more refined, and that's when you can start getting glimpses of other things that are around you. Um, a, magi a magician's standpoint is that we're constantly immersed in a sea of spirit. Okay, there's spirit everywhere right now, right over there. Uh, whoever is watching this or listening to my voice, there's spirits all around you right now. You don't see them and they don't care about you really. It's so it's the same way you think of it uh, the way you, you know, you step into a forest and you are aware that there's life all around you. But, you know, I don't know, the squirrel doesn't care about you really. Uh, the ants go around their, 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 you know, their, 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 their tasks and the bees goes around their task, etc. etc. The same way we, we are we are surrounded by spirit. Okay. We can get in touch with this spirit. And um, to do that we have to learn how to refine our senses, um, to become how to uh, become aware and in control of the elements around us and which are you know the traditional four elements, you know, fire, earth, uh, water and air. And by doing that, you kind of unlock a fifth element, the quintessential spirit. And once you do that, then you start making more sense also of those rituals that at the beginning really seems like you doing, I don't know, katas. If you've never done, ever done karate, they do like the forms of martial arts, okay, something like that. So back to your question, and sorry about the ramble, but I ramble a lot. No, it's okay. Uh, back, <laughs> back to your question, what really happened there is that um, Zoom allowed us to, you know, maybe present a lesson and then people go and do it and then come back and ask me exactly these questions, right? And maybe I was telling you, you know, like, concentrate on this, concentrate on that. Few months in, you would see people that were able to feel what it really means to invoke an angelic presence in your, in, in, into yourself. Invocation means to call inside, comes from the Latin, invocare, call, Boko means to call in, inside you, obviously. And, the, and that's the first step. It's, it takes some time, but it's relatively simple. You have to, again, become, learn to be still, become aware of your senses, of the elements, etc. The next step is what you really need to do, what I would say, more interactive magic, and that's evocation magic. It's evokai means to call out. This is more similar to what you would think when you think of grimoires, right? The idea of the magician, you know, inside a circle with a triangle of, ev of evocation in front of them and, you know, calling the spirit in the triangle that appears maybe to physical manifestation or maybe appears as smoke or maybe appears as a sensation, maybe appears as, I don't know, uh, the sound of footsteps around you, maybe appears as a, as a voice that, that comes into your ear, right? But that's... That's when you feel that you're not just calling something inside you and you don't partake of that essence, spiritual essence by mingling with it, but actually you're calling something out and you can have a conversation. Um, I think Jason Miller said something, which is a very good author. Um, you should guys should talk with him as well. He wrote a fantastic books. Uh, and he, he said that, uh, you know, in, in evocation, there must be the I and the Tao. 
whereby in invocation, there's just the, just just you, you and these other feelings that have come to reside in you and can enrich your experience, right? So long story short, um, if you if you go into magic without um, without knowing really what to expect and without having your maybe um, wrong expectations, no, I wouldn't say curtailed, but you know, like bring, brought back to the center a little bit, uh, you can you can maybe. Uh, miss some important experiences and maybe you can never learn those important basics that will let you have the the more um the i and thou experience like the the you and the other experience um so that's that's what was very good in magic with tears because i was able like it happened in magical lodges in covens uh, in groups circles whatever you want to call it uh, have a, a very frank conversation about you know this is what magic is mm-hmm. um that's really it it it, it, it has some steps and if you follow the the plan you 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 have results pretty much we doing we doing what you've done um virtually yeah you sorry saying we're doing what you've done virtually with magic without tears um, so we've done we, we've like done brought, sorry it seems like you've brought like any like magic into modern times and that's what I was going to go into next in, in regards to um your book um so Alistair Crowley tell me magic magic for modern times so was it was it through obviously your interactions what you did in in the, the online um, process yeah. to then so basically I would say that in your book? The, we we've done things uh, in uh, in real time right um, we've done and we've done more scrying sessions in real time by that I mean that we um, that scrying is yet another m- magical practice whereby you have usually one person that sits in front of a black mirror or a crystal ball or a shoe stone and tries to concentrate into the the device and getting things out of it like you know tuning into a radio if you want now the magical part of it is that what we've done for instance um we we would gather on zoom right and we would have one person um have it looking into the shoe stone or the black mirror another person asking questions right okay whatever we were in that case in in that time we were actually we did, we did a series of session trying to find out the terry wrist of hellier right like because one of my theories is that 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 is a spirit okay uh, it's it's a theory that's been i've, I've been working in for years um and also out of respect to to the team of Hellier, because they had a lot of people, you know, trying to hijack their 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 investigation yeah. at the end. Like it's not something that I'm going to talk about, but you know, that was my. It's it's one thing that I believe in. I had some some uh, evidence of it, uh, and the thing is that like we were using a group a circle whereby we were on Zoom. One person was crying, another person was asking questions, and the other people were maybe chanting some mantras, maybe or some mantras really are magical sigils that are reduced in a way that you can um, you can vocalize. We were they they were concentrating on a sigil, they, and they were pretty much like projecting all of this onto the scryer. So imagine there was almost like a virtual circle in, and with the scryer in the middle and, and the questioner in front of the scryer, which is pretty much what you would do in a magical lodge in real, pers- in real life. You would have a circle of people that were just, not just there to assist what's happening, but they're, they're creating a circle. They're, they're, they're generating energy, magical energy, prana, uh, and, and focusing it into the scryer so that the scryer can be more energized and can have more 
let's say maybe can um, receive better um, better noses, better better information from from the process. So that's definitely something we've done plenty, plenty of times. Uh, and something we we have we didn't do on on screen um was but we did at the same time everyone and by that by everyone i mean literally like hundreds of people across the world uh a lot of a lot of them uh are still still to this day are in the united states but several are here in the uk several across europe some in south korea uh some in you know some in australia so you know like across the world find the same time and all of us we would do maybe like an evocation. We did uh, the Arbatel. Uh, Ar the Arbatel is a magical grimoire. Usually it's the, the easiest and the simplest one you, you want to use at first because you want to experience it first because it evokes the, the whole or the Olympic spirits or the spirits of the planets. And they tend to be, um, some people will disagree with me, but tend to be very benign, okay? Uh, at, or at least more structured and more easy to deal with than the demons of the Goetia, which which I don't think they're evil. I don't believe in evil. I don't believe in good either. I believe in uh, experience. And uh, uh, but this, the demons of the Goetia definitely are more sanguine, right? They're more uh, human-like. Okay, so they have more of a temperament. Whereby uh, the Olympic spirits are, tend to be more this immutable um, cosmic uh, energies. So the, the the good way, if you want to try a vocation. You should do all the the basics that actually the, that's what the book is about. Kind of kind of you to prepare for you to try your first evocation, and then you should definitely start with the um, with the Arbatel. But again, like we did it over seven months, there are seven Olympic spirits. Uh, we would meet every, so every day. Uh, sorry, every day, uh, once a month on the, on a specific day on a specific planetary hour. Uh, we would just go in it, and we had fantastic results. Um, but you know, like it, for me, it was really a testament of what I know it to be true already is that e e magic works if you have the will to be consistent about it, right? Magic works if you understand that it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Like you, if you want to start doing magic, you need to start doing it knowing that for the next maybe year, you, you will feel very little. I, I, I exaggerate here because, as, as we said before, we, people had a lot of, of um, results much earlier, but also because, I would say, because it was lockdown times. There was nothing else to do. Like everybody we were doing, we we're just reading about magic, this magic, that was it, right? Uh, now, now it's different, right? Also, the reason why I was telling you that we went from having 200 uh, concurrent members to 100 concurrent members because, you know, half of, half of them went to their normal lives, I'd say, and that's fine. But the, the idea is that if you live a normal life where, you know, go to the, you, you commute to work, come back, have a family, go out to the movies, all these things that we need to do to survive as a species, I would say, um, you will need, maybe you will need maybe a year, nine months to a year to, to start really having um, serious uh, feedback. And once you, once you know that, you, once you made, you, you made that commitment and you stick with it, results will come. What I know, what I can tell you in my experience is completely bollocks is a lot of the stuff you maybe hear on, on YouTube or see on Reddit, uh, or, you know, or on the internet, you know, you, you, you use this word and everything will unlock for you. You conjure this demon and everything will happen. First of all, demon's not going to come. 
because you don't have enough energy to conjure anything at the beginning, right? Oh, but I am a hereditary witch. No, you're not. Uh, that's that's not a thing. <laughs> so, yeah, so, I, I'm, you know, I, I tend to be very um, very blunt on these things. Um, he, magic, magic for me is much more of an art than it is a science. And even Crowley, Crowley really tried to, uh, you know, to define it in both ways. And in the book, I say that possibly it did because, um, well, first of all, of course, Crowley, most popular definition of magic was the science and art of causing change to occur in according with will. But you many will notice that, you know, he really described it as the union of science and art. So it's the rational and the inspired. And I think that Crowley was living, since Crowley was living in a time when science was starting to finally uh, fully explain the world around him, so he wanted to almost capture a piece of that in order that he could um, market magic better, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in time, he really, I think he really came to understand that magic is much, so much more an art than it is a science. And so, yes, talent, your, your talent will matter as it matters in every talent. Like, you know, you can decide to play guitar. I'm a guitarist, that's why I'm saying that. But uh, but I'm not a very talented guitarist, right? You know, I can play, okay, but I've seen people that are really talented and, you know, I, they would pick a and go, right, and do things. Magic is kind of like that, so there will be people that are more talented. But overall, a talented person with no, um, you know, with no consistence will not be able to have the same results that... A consistent person with a little talent will have. Now, of course, if you marry the two and you have the talented person that is also consistent, then you get Crowley, I suppose. But that's uh, you know that's one in a million, uh, maybe one in a um, hundred thousand, maybe not a million, hundred thousand. You know, it's that it, it, you got the point. Mm -hmm. The next, actually, the next question is: Can you really give us a, a definition of what magic is? Um, yeah, of course. I mean, I, I think we we touched on that, right? Um, Something that I said before, right? Yeah, Crowley and I describe it as the science and art of causing change to a court in conformity with will. Thing is, will in that phrase, uh, you got to think of it with a capital W, okay? Because that term assumes a very specific meaning in Crowley's system of esoteric philosophy, which is called telema. In fact, telema is a Greek word from the Koine Greek and means will itself. Uh, Will it's not whatever you want to do, okay? And this is also where you I tend to lose a lot of people that are interested in dilemma at first because they come to dilemma thinking, oh, you know what? I want to just join this very hedonistic, uh, uh, I do what I want kind of philosophy. Will is the absolute opposite of it. Will, in fact, um, implies um, a very strict, almost stoic approach to life and the incarnated experience in fact because that will it's a process it's something that you do not start with you cannot begin with true will and that's a little uh, reference to a, a book that was announced months ago and never never came to light um possibly because you know they realized it was full of shit. <laughs> sorry for my french <laughs> but the point is also that um you cannot you you will only discover what your will is 
at the end of that process that we just discussed so far, at the end of that marathon, right? Like that's when you discover your will. And in fact, it implies that you can only use magic as Crowley intended it, so the art and science of causing change according to your will, only once you've discovered your will. And that discovering of your will, you can think of it like discovering who you are, why are you here? What is that you're supposed to do? Um, it's, it has so much more to that. As you can imagine, being such a, a cardinal point of a very complex magical philosophy, um, I'm only skimming on the surface here. Mm-hmm. But to give you another little perspective, you know, once you know your true will, you, you're not afraid of death anymore. You see, you under, fully understand what death is and you face it without any fear whatsoever, but with certainty. And you have no doubts anymore about who you are. Uh, why are you, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? This doesn't mean that you become detached from your feelings in the sense that you, uh, that's where it really, I think, um, diverges from maybe a very simplistic understanding of stoicism uh but there's a lot there's a lot of similarities in there right between telema and and stoic thinking um so long story short really magic is the tool that allows you to do what you're what you incarnated to do and that's down to you like nobody can tell you what that is only you can at the end of of the process of discovery now, one thing that it's important to add, I think, is that Crowley also, especially in his la- later years, talking with one of his uh, disciples called Karl Germer, he also stated that magic is getting in communications with individuals who exist on a higher plane than ours. Mysticism is the raising of oneself to their level. So this means that the, na- the, nature, the nature of these beings, of the spirits, uh, ultra-terrestrials, uh, UFOs, you can call it, right? The intertwining of magic and mystic practices and the result of these communications are the very core of the magician's exp- experience. So what, what does magicians do? Uh, first of all, they discover who they are. Once they've done that, they do that. They do what they are, right? With a specific, in, uh, with a specific attention in constantly trying and find information that is constantly filtered by that sea of spirit that surrounds us that I mentioned before. Uh, This is where uh, the communication with spirit is paramount. And this is where, you know, maybe in a more modern lens, uh, the communication with whatever we call, you know, ultra-terrestrials, UFO, UAPs, it's also very important. Uh, I will say also, this this tends to be a bit of a, heretical thought in magician circles, not so maybe in later years, maybe also thanks to Hellier, things have been changing. But, you know, for the longest time, uh, if you were a serious magician, which is kind of like, you know, a nonsensical thing to say anyway, but if you're a serious magician, you would not talk about UFOs, right? <laughs> uh, and, you know, over the years, things have been, you know, that, that, const- that, that, that part came and went. In the 70s was very popular with uh, Kenneth Grant. In the 90s was very popular again when my friend Peter Lavenda wrote, you know, Sinister Forces, uh, which is fantastic, by the way. Um, Peter wrote the, uh, the introduction to my book, so I am 
thank you. <laughs> like you, if you were able to read it, he, he really pictured it in a very nice way. Um, and again, like he, he is another person that really uh, insisted over the years on how you know, a magician will have to get in touch with higher intelligences that we can call in many ways. It doesn't really matter how we call them. Much more important is that we have these connections. And, um, and you know, to 20 years later, here we are once again, where we're finally going back in the magical discourse where, yes, you know, spirit connection is important. Mm-hmm. We need to explore it <laughs> because, you know, like we as humans, doesn't matter how uh, enlightened or awakened we think we are, um, which is always, I think, always a sort of a trap to fall into, to think yourself as awakened. Um, you can always know more. You always get more noses, more information from whatever lies beyond the limits of our incarnated existence. Uh, once again, Jason Miller described us as you know spirits uh, aggregated around the physical body, but we are surrounded by uh, consciousness that doesn't aggregate around a physical body and maybe that free them uh, and make them more prone to have I don't know better information more information and you know getting more information and better information is it's, it's what going to serve as well in our quest of understanding who we are and wh- what we're doing here and I would say where we're going next yeah yeah but only just just back to Peter Lavender there. Um, did he co-author Secret Machines as well? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. He, he actually I have it here. Uh, the first one, uh, Secret Machine Gods. Yeah. And uh, this was this is the first one, the one that goes. I mean, he was uh, he, he's doing this trilogy. I don't I don't know. He, God is out. Man is, is out as well. I don't think War is out yet. Uh, he's doing this with Tom DeLonge. And uh, he, he was actually contacted by Tom DeLonge uh, because they, he and the people in To The Stars Academy read, I think, um, uh, Sinister Forces. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, you know, like, Peter is an interesting guy. Like, <laughs> it's, uh, okay, yeah, it's, if, there's, like, if there's like one real, like the idea of a real magician, um, it's him. <laughs> I've got, the, I've got the, the smaller and lazy copy of the audio one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, just and what's uh, sorry? Just, then you go. Then you go. I was just going to say, what is Secret Machines? Uh, I, I I'm not aware of this. This is a uh, this is news to me. Uh so it, it, it's basically um, how can I put this? Uh, it's the um, it's a series of books that try to explain to the layman. But but by that by that I mean like literally someone who has never heard of this mm-hmm. concept and maybe come from very uh, strict backgrounds. Uh, the fact that we might, you know, we might be in con- soon be uh, presented with a, with an influx of information coming from somewhere else, right? Uh, something Tom DeLong is absolutely convinced is this this idea of disclosure, right? That has been so uh, discussed in recent in recent years. Because I mean, definitely something has been happening. Like we've been living in unprecedented times. Uh, we still do. <laughs> At the time of recording, we're still in a very weird position everywhere in geopolitics, right? Um, and uh, I mean, like he's convinced that you know the aliens are coming. But the point is, what Peter does in these books tries to explain what are the aliens, right? Yeah. Like, are there are are they like little green men coming from another planet, 
or maybe there's so much more to understand about it, right? Yeah. Uh, I would say that, you know, Peter and I, we definitely uh, are not into the nuts and bolts kind of uh, discourse. Like it could be, that could be, it could be possible that we, we've been visited, we are being visited, we will be visited by physical beings like you and I that moves into physical crafts. But what's much more probable is that these are sort of downloads of informations that exist on different planes than ours. Like they really exist as frequencies, like traversing the the, the planes of existence. And uh, and that's as I say that's what Secret Machines is about. You should if you, if you're interested in this and you are, <laughs> uh, pick it up. And even like I said, I I just read been reading the first one. Um, it's fantastic. The thing is, like Peter again, uh, Peter Lavender is a fantastic writer. Like he, he would sell you anything by his writing, <laughs> like because he, he has a way with words. Uh, you just read about, okay, I, I'm just happy about reading this, right? But the information is very good as well. So they're pretty good. I mean, I, I recommend it. <laughs> they're pretty good as ones I was going to go back and read. You know what I mean? Because it's it's that's a lot to digest. And um, oh yeah, absolutely. I went, I I mean, went through. There's, there are a few have got an audiobook. Um, but um, yeah, really, really good. You know, I mean, really good. No, I mean, you're right. Like, there's a lot of information. It, it bought in the Instagram machines, uh, from what I read so far. But especially when you go back in um, Sinister Forces, mm-hmm. Sinister Forces kind of is secret machines, but for esotericists. Yeah. So for people that have a, know a little bit more, and there's a ton of information. Like, imagine Penny Royal podcast times 2000, uh, which is pretty much what Penny Royal is behind, behind, uh, you know, behind the scenes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's so much there. Because again, the world we live in, it's way more complex than our day-to-day life needs it to be. We need to go about our lives with, a little, with some certainties, right? Uh, the problem is that when you go in deeper, you realize that there is a lot there. Without, I mean, without delving into crazy conspiracy theories, I am, I mean, I'm going to tell you right away, I am really against, I'm very, very outspoken about um, against conspiracy theories when they are, you know, fronts for political ideologies or, uh, you know, that kind of idea. But I also the kind of person that say, hey, you know what, the world is way much more complex than, uh, you know, you hear on the news. Obviously, because it's um, a, the world is very complex. So, yeah, it's a complex system, and you know, the more you engage with magic, the more you engage with with this kind of practice, you open yourself up to even more layers of complexity. And the idea is that you know, my experience is to just you know sit down, breathe deeply, accept the fact that we have in fact, a limited amount of cognitive power. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that not to get overwhelmed by all of this, and maybe also not think that we can maybe ever make sense of all of it, right? Like, I think this was Alan Moore that, you know, very famously said that, you know, I'm not quoting verbatim, but the idea is that, you know, the world is not has the conspiracy theories wanted, because there's no one in control. The world is rudderless. And that's exact, I mean, I, I, that has been my experience, right? I would say that maybe that, that rudderless chaos can be uh, taken in and can be subsumed a little bit so that we can actually accept its immensity, but it is immense. And, uh, and that is what, what's meant to be. I do, I do think that the more you look into all these different subjects, um, the more you actually realise you swallow the red pill and there's no going back. 
<laughs> oh yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so just uh, kind of coming back to like the generalization, uh, like let's say for the cult, right? So um, over the past, like say going back in like maybe eighties, nineties, stuff like that. And I mean, there's got quite a people seen it as a negative thing, or people seen it as um, like kind of got bad connotations. Uh, um, people seen it as Satanist and things like that. Why? Why mm-hmm. do you think that was? It just got kind of a bad rep. Well, I mean, you know, the thing is, you know, occult itself, again, from Latin occultus, occultare, means something that's hidden, right? Yeah. So whatever is hidden, whatever you don't know, it it scares you. I mean, uh, Lovecraft said that the greatest uh, um, feeling that you know, humans can experience is fear, right? And that's true, right? Like, we, it's one of those primeval instincts. Like, we, we have a, like a really knee-jerk reaction to fear. I mean, that's, that's, that's what it's meant to do to us. So... Not knowing will generate prejudice, will generate fear. And this is ignorant. I would say this is the ignorance part of the equation why, you know, cult practitioners are seen as negative or evil even. The other part, I'm going to be honest about that, that there's a lot of edgelordy bullshit in between in occultism as well. Like there's a lot of people that will play the part of the, the evil, the base, the satanist. Crowley himself was one of them. Um, Crowley was never a Satanist, right? Like the thing is, you oftentimes, nine times out of 10, Crowley, the famous Satanist. Crowley was not a Satanist. Like Crowley was not even part of like the left-hand path, which is this uh, umbrella term that comes from a badly read understanding of theosophists Mm-hmm. of Hindu practices, Hinduist practices, whereby, you know, in Hinduism, in Tantra especially, you can have, you know, two way of doing things, one called the uh, Dakshina Marga, the right-hand path, and one called the Vama Marga, the left-hand path. They're, they're just two ways of doing things, okay? One may, you know, the Vama Marga, the left-hand path might be a little bit more iconoclastic, but that's about it. Comes the Theosophist, they think, okay, the right-hand path is the good, the left-hand path is the bad, because theosophy was really about, you know, dividing everything in white and black. That's where the ideas of the white lodge and black lodge comes from. Maybe we'll discuss about it later. But the idea is that, you know, one is good and one is bad. Absolutely bollocks. <laughs> uh, different ways of doing things. And Crowley himself, which was, you know, he, he was in his, his, um, uh, his experiences, his life, his philosophy was informed by theosophy did take some of this in and in fact in his writing he would say that he was of the right and path because he was actually looking to uh you know go reunite with the godhead whereby any he, he would call whoever whoever doesn't do their true will whoever become entrenched into their own delusions of grandeur they were the left and path and now in 2020 in fact you know since i started looking into this in the 90s i mean it wasn't really like this you would see a lot of people playing on the idea that Crowley was a Satanist, he was a left-hand path practitioner, he was evil, and that's why it's good, right? So let's, I think that, you know, there's a lot of maybe childish um, iconoclastism, um, also the idea of going against the grain, going against the, the governments, going, which, you know, in many ways could be a good thing, in fact, you know, especially in times like this, but that's also what plays into, in, into the you know, into the field of those who will just try and demonize everything. So long story short, I think that 
ignorance plays a big part, but also, you know, the antics of occultism and plays plays a little part as well. I mean, that's, this is why I do what I do, in fact, because I try to be very open about practices, the practice that we do. Um, and uh, I, I try to, I mean, in, in the book I wrote, it's it's really for everyone. Like it's really for everybody who's never, never even read about Telema or Crowley. You can pick it up and try to make sense of what it is hopefully showing that there is nothing evil in it it's a is a path of self-mastery it's a path of self-realization i would argue that maybe you will find no matter what like the um the fanatic christians or the fanatic of any kind of religion really that will say oh that is bad it's because you i mean something has been told to me like you cannot if you, if you look for your self-mastery you're denying god in your life that answer the answer i gave them i don't i'm not denying god i am god so that's the thing like you are god and the cat is god and everyone is god so you know the thing is uh but i would say that you know there will be the fanatic type religious type that if they if they hear this thing like oh no you're evil so i don't think you will i don't think we will never move beyond beyond the path where someone will see this practice any practice of self-realization self-mastery as dangerous or evil and i guess that's okay <laughs> like uh, we, we gotta live with it it's definitely true that we are once again living in potentially dangerous times um the so-called satanic panic has been making a comeback i've seen it i've been exposed to it uh there's no doubt about it um it's very tied in this day and age in with far-right uh extremism especially in the United States, but also here in the UK, there, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, interesting names, especially up there in Scotland, by the way. Um, so it, it's something that, again, um, it, it's something that's on my mind, right? Uh, especially as a relatively public figure. I mean, I do public events now that COVID has stopped, right? Like, and um, I, I, uh, I, am, I put my face and my name out there. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I've been a, uh, a public face. I mean, I've been a musician before uh, when I was younger. <laughs> so yeah I, yeah, I don't know what it's like to, to be under the spotlight. Mm -hmm. It's if you are, if you're a new person, uh, I would say these are not completely safe times. Uh, and I'm not going to mince with words. Right? I, I used to live, I remember living through safe times, right? When when you could just do whatever you wanted and nobody cared. That was like the the, well, the 90s themselves to a degree. Surely like the, the notice and the 2010s up until 2015, 2016. That's when things started going down the drain. And now now it's it's a bit of a bit of a difficult time. But it's it happened before and it's not nearly as bad as what it, it already has been. Like, you know, a lot of my friends uh that are older than me were you know, were targets of the satanic panic in the in the, in the 80s. And that was when people lost their jobs or people were, you know, attacked, physically attacked. Mm -hmm. We're not there yet. And maybe we will not get there again because in the meantime, we, we had another 30 years where a lot of things became more acceptable in society as they should be. Um, but yeah, it's... Ignorance sucks. Let's <laughs> put it like that. <laughs> I was uh, wondering about come back to Crowley. You mentioned a few things about him being to a uh, theosophical society. Uh, can you maybe tell us about some of the religions and uh, practices that he studied 
and how they influenced uh, his his beliefs. So Crowley starts his life uh, in uh, in a very fanatical household. He starts his life as a member of the Plymouth Brethren, especially as a member of the Exclusive Brethren. Like, if the Plymouth Brethren are a, are a fanatical sect in Christianity. The exclusive brethren are the, the fanatical, the fanatics of the fanaticals, you know, like the worst of the lot. Um, up until like he, you know, up until he went to to college, uh, he could only read from the Bible. Not nothing else was allowed for him to read. Um, maybe that's why, uh, you know, the the, the <laughs> why he rebelled so much against uh, the the tenets of Christianity. The I don't know if you know the name of the great beast. Was his mother gave it gave it to him? Uh, he was a, yeah, he, he was a very unruly child, and um, and apparently you know he had his way with with the maidens. So when he was reached like you know um, the teenage years, and his mother dubbed him the Great Beast, and apparently he really liked it. Right, so that stick with him. Uh, uh, but the point being is that you know so that's a very strong um, understanding of Christianity. It's the beginning of Crowley. And that's also the the moment he decides to rebel against it, right? And that's why you know he goes to Cambridge, um, and he experiments well with with all sorts of sexuality. Uh, he was definitely what, what we would call today gender a gender fluid individual across his life, and his preference, in fact, was uh, homosexual. In fact, so uh, and he exper- experimented with it uh, all for his life. It definitely started in Cambridge. That's also when he became acquainted with, well, f- with, I would say his first spiritual practice was mountaineering of all, of all things, because, you know, he was a very keen mountaineer, uh, actually very, very skilled. It's funny because, you know, we have this idea of Crowley in past his prime as this very fat, uh, you know, raccoon, like you know, kind of like jubbly kind of guy. Um, I mean, up until his 40s, he was in perfect shape right because he was like uh, climbing everywhere um he, he befriended oscar heckerstein which was a very famous climber and uh, you know they they attempted the the, the k2 um uh, climb and it failed and in fact it, it failed badly uh, Crowley ended up being responsible for the death of some people in that um expedition and that's kind of where, where he is you know mountaineering um exploits kind of ended there from that point onward, he started to get interested in everything that was coming from the East. And by that, I mean also the you know, Middle East, like Egypt, right? Uh, Got to remember, this was the uh, late Victorian period. Egyptomania was at its highest. And the influx of this, the, the, the Theosophical Society was growing very strongly. Crowley was born in 1875, the day, the year, sorry, the year of the, the foundation of the Theosophical Society, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think I'm right. And uh, so, you know, 25 years later, um, he, he immerses himself into all these things. And from a magical standpoint, what really captures his, his interest is the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn is possibly single-handedly the most important magical group that we we ever had here in, in the West, okay? Um, even more so than the Theosophical Society. Uh, maybe the Theosophical Society uh, has really left its imprint in the mystical understanding of, 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 of the human experience, whereby you know, magic was really 
reformulated and organized and structured by the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. They were, um, they started uh, from, as an offshoot of um, uh, a magical Masonic society called the Societas Rosicruciana in Anglia, which means the Rosicrucian Society of England. And three of them, um, Wynne, uh, Westcott, and uh, Mathers, um, you know, wanted to do something even more magical than what the SRAA was allowing them to do. Uh, still keeping a little bit of the Masonic structure, but you know, reformulating everything and having something outside of Freemasonry, pretty much. And that's where the uh, the Golden Dawn came to be. The Golden Dawn also, you know, was one of the first groups that allowed women in it. And it has to be said that the Golden Dawn leaders, for the most, always been women. Um, you, Florence Farr, a famous actress, was not only um, a member, but one of the main forces behind the Golden Dawn uh, was was the hierophant or chief adept of Isis Urania, which was the first temple here in London. And I'm thinking about many other important, famous women, Annie Horniman, Moina Matters, uh, which was born, uh, Moina Bresson, which was the, the, the sister of the famous uh, French philosopher, um, Maud Gon, the famous Irish re uh, revolutionary, plenty of important women. And that was kind of like groundbreaking at the time, if you think about it, right? Um, Crowley, this is, this is the, the word Crowley gets um, invited into. And Crowley being Crowley, uh, being very, very skilled at magic, uh, he kind of like goes through the, the first order, or rather it's called the third order, the, the, the lowest one, very fast. He, he excels at everything. And at, at the same time, uh, he finds himself in a position uh, of having excelled at everything, being very eager to go to the next levels, but in a time where the Golden Dome was coming to the schism that would end its first incarnation. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to go too much in detail. I don't think you're interested in the history of the Golden Dome, but that's what his first experience uh, was. This is what this, you know, unravels around the year and um, the, the turn of the century, really. And after, you know, the Golden Dome in its first incarnation uh, you know, collapses, Crowley becomes very di disappointed and very uh, unhappy with the experience and kind of leaves everything behind for a while. Uh, so what he does, uh, he decides to get, to get married, <laughs> as, as you do. And um, um, with his first wife, they go on, um, on a honeymoon around the world. You got to understand that Crowley uh, was very rich at the time. Uh, he was the inheritor of a small fortune that has been quantified between two and six millions of, of um, today's pounds mm -hmm. um, from his father, uh, because the Crowley's family was very, uh, was well, actually, they, they had, um, they had a brewery, Crowley beers, so I still, still go, <laughs> still go on, you still can, you still can buy them. And um, there's this, uh, this story that we don't know, if, I don't know if it's a legend, it's possible, maybe not, that one of the reasons why, you know, the Crowley pubs became very rich, it's because they kind of invented the idea of the Sunday roast. I don't know, I never looked too much into it, but it's likely, let's put it like that. Like, at least like, you know, they kind of um, started offering a proper roast on Sundays, right? And then, of course, people flock into the place, make a lot of money. This was uh, Crowley's grandfather. Uh, so, you know, Crowley has a lot of money 
at this point in time. Uh, eventually, he would squander everything, by the way, uh, which I never, I never really figured how, because that's a lot of money. But still, <laughs> travel is uh, a really good bet, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing is that he would really, he would really, he would really, really would live large, and he lived large for like up until his like late late twenties, maybe mid thirties. So for a long time, living large, you know, he's going to, and by large, I mean, like, literally, like he would get, uh, you know, rent the best suites, uh, the hotels, uh, a lot of fine, going around in finery, you, know, you, you got the idea. So he marries uh, Rose Kelly, and they go around the world in their honeymoon, and in April, well, rather, March 1st, and then April 1904, something happens that would change his life forever. And that is that um, his wife receives a series series of communications from something or someone that would tell them, Crowley pretty much would tell Crowley like where they are waiting for you. And so Crowley, knowing that Rose up until that point never showed any interest in, in his weird interests of magic, say, like, oh, well, who's they? And uh, that day, so she bring, he brings her to the Bulak Museum to to see if she can find this day anywhere. And lo and behold, she points to one specific Egyptian stele, a funerary stele, the funerary stele of a priest called Ankafna Konsu, which was a priest of the god Mentu in Tebes, thousands of years before. Mm-hmm. And in on the stele, you see, well, you see three gods, right? But first of all, you've got to understand that this concept of gods in Egyptian uh, traditional uh, mythology is kind of complex because, you know, the same god would have different aspects, right? And then when you translate this into Telema and magic, it gets even more complex. But let's use the term god for now. The three gods you find on the stele are uh, Raur Kuit or Horus. Uh, you find Nuit, which, by the way, is the lady that you see behind me, the, the night sky. And the the wind globe uh which called uh crowley would call it hadith the real term the real name is behudi which is like the 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 solar disk okay yeah and so crowley remains very you know, very shocked by this uh realization anyway he plays along and finds out that um you know his wife gives him very specific um instructions for a ritual that he does and uh, out of these rituals come the uh, the book of the law, Liber Alvelegis. Mm-hmm. Liber Alvelegis is a relatively short book of 220 verses, a bit, bit more because some verses are longer than just one line, but yeah, that you get the idea. Um, divided in three chapters. Each chapter uh, is one of these gods that talk. So the first chapter is Nuit, the second chapter is Hadith, the third chapter is Rahu Kuit. And this book is dictated by an entity called uh, that calls himself Haivas and presents himself as the minister of Horparkrat. Horparkrat being Harpocrates or Horus the Younger. So once again, we see that there is, what I was telling you, the idea that there's so many different things uh, and uh, the same the same god maybe can have different aspects at the same time. Anyway, he writes it down, and this becomes the tantra, the the the, the illuminated um, noses of Telema. It, there, it, it gives a lot of instructions on what to do, uh, what to expect, pretty much like how to set up a new religion. 
Mm-hmm. Something that's also important to understand is that, um, and we, we really cannot get too much into this because it's, there's a lot to say yeah. by the book. <laughs> but the point is, um, what happens here is that a new eon comes into play. Mm-hmm. An eon is a, a term that um, refers both to a period of time and to a series of um, instructions, of laws, of formulas. Okay, you can really think of it as installing a new um, operating system, right? From time to time, new operating systems comes along, and you, you it doesn't matter if you want to, inst- you can decide not to install it immediately, but eventually if you don't, your tech becomes so obsolete that you will have to upgrade anyway. I mean, it's a terrible analogy, but I guess you get the idea. That's what happened there. Uh, you realize that there's been this change, there's been this new Eon came into being, and this means new magic, new ways of doing things. It's a very good analogy. Uh, <laughs> it's a very good analogy for us. <laughs> yeah, I think I think he would have liked it actually. Uh, I, I, it's better in the book. Um, anyway, uh, point being is that like he realizes that you know he, he has to he has to do something with it, and for many years he just hates it and tries to do nothing at all. Um, at that time, by the way, Crowley was pretty much like you know he left the Golden Dome behind. He was disappointed with it. Kind of tried to be a Buddhist. Uh, he studied Zen. He, he just tried to do, to live a relatively normal life for some years. Eventually, in nineteen uh, between the, the end of nineteen o six and beginning of nineteen o seven, with one of his um, old member old friends from the Golden Dome, he realizes that it comes. It does come the time where he cannot deny the magic and the information in the Book of the Law anymore, and he has to do something about it. Any structures a new order called the AA, Argentum Astrum, which it's Latin for silver star. It has to be said that Argentum Astrum also is the public name of this order. There's a secret name for those who are a member of it, or so I'm told. And uh, pretty much the Argentum Astrum becomes like Golden Dawn 2.0, but telemic. You know, all the information that came from the Book of the Law, um, and the information that Crowley derives by getting in touch with these entities once again and receiving more information. In those, th- in those months, he receives many more books that put, to get, put together um, forms what they called the Holy Book of Telema. And in all, there's like 12 of them, the most important ones, at least in my opinion. This one um, gave pretty much a, a new uh, set of things to do, okay? Mm-hmm. And so that's where he structured the AA as a continuation of the Golden Dawn. He keeps the same structure uh, based on Kabbalah, Hermetic Kabbalah. That means not Jewish Kabbalah. That's very important to say. Um, the Kabbalah we use in magic, it's a simplified, <laughs> reduced version and has almost nothing to do with the, with the original Jewish Kabbalah. We also use different spelling, right? We, use, we, we spell it with a Q as opposed with a K. And, you know, long story short, he, that's what he tries to do. He, he tries to, you know, keep on doing magic. Uh, we're not at the end of the story because a few years later again, um, 1912 now, so six, six, five, uh, between six and five years later, the, the foundation of the AA, he is invited kind of forced to become the leader of the uh, British branch of the OTO, Ordo Templiorientis, or Order of the Temple of the East. Ordo Templiorientis at this point is what is called as, a, as an Academia Pan-Masonica. That means 
an attempt by a series of um, German Freemasons to simplify in only nine degrees everything that Freemasonry had to offer, both regular Freemasonry and esoteric Freemasonry. In, on top of that, they would try to introduce also concepts of yoga and Tantra that were starting to filter from the East. A lot of things trying to, like a lot of ideas to try and like just nine initiations, like nine operative degrees, mm -hmm. uh, you would have to learn all these things all at once. Uh, Crowley, you know, jumps, you know, ever, ever the, the person looking for spotlight jumps uh, to, the, to the occasion. And of course it takes um, to him to you know, reform the British branch of the OTO, <clears throat> makes it telemic. Again, in his idea, the AA would have been, you know, the the magical school, and the OTO would be a magical school as well, but with one with a Masonic flair. And you gotta remember, Freemasonry was the playground of kings and princes and dukes at the time. Yeah. I mean, today it's not really like that, mm -hmm. uh, and it hasn't been for decades now. Uh, but at the time, it was like literally like a, a very exclusive place to be so it was like okay i'm you know i'm gonna get a, i'm gonna get a piece of that obviously and i'm gonna make it telemic uh and he did and uh you know to now to try and and wrap this all up all of this um efforts failed yay never really took took off i mean it exists to this day in different lineages and different branches uh, uh like the golden dawn somehow survived over the years in different lineages and different branches I would say all this, all the orders that you find today and you can join today, including the ones I joined, because of course I joined the AA in 1999, 1998, and, uh, and then the OTO 10 years ago, they are reconstructions. Um, there's no unbroken lineage from Crowley. Uh, this is something that you know might come to surprise for some of you, uh, and I'm pretty sure that maybe will be people in the comments, you know, maybe on YouTube, and say, "Oh no, that, that's a lie because my lineage is the right one." That's bullshit. No, that's not true. There is no unbroken lineage. There never was. Uh, all these groups were never big in Crowley's time because he was terrible at organizing things. He was too big of an ego. He was impossible to work with. He was a genius, no doubt about it, but he was not somebody. It's Elon Musk on Twitter right now, okay? That's, a, that's, the, that's the idea that I can give you, right? Like a very intelligent person with a lot of ideas, but maybe not the best person you want to run anything at all. Um, and so, you know, like there, even with the OTO, there were attempts made during the, the 40s to expand in the United States uh, with names like Jack Parsons, which is a name you hear a lot. Like he, he became you know, a member and he tried to run something in, the, in, in Pasadena in California before. As always happens, you know, came at odds with Crowley and went to do his own thing. Uh, other people tried to, you know, ingratiate the Scottish right of Freemasonry in Detroit. Uh, so the Grand Lodge, well, the Supreme Grand Chapter, Supreme Grand? Council, I don't remember what it's called. The Supreme Grand something of, the, of Michigan. It failed. Um, there's a beautiful book on that, if you're curious. It's called Panic in Detroit by Richard Kaczynski. Super funny. Like, it tells you how, how bad they were constantly fucking up everything. Because, you know, they had, they had, they were, they had a lot of ideas, but they were really not the best people to, do, to talk to other people, pretty much. And, you know, like, eventually, um, Crowley and this, all these orders kind of disappeared after the 40s and the 50s, really. 
what really happened was with the late 60s, summer of love, right? With the Beatles, with the Rolling Stones, there was a resurgence of interest in Crowley. And it was the 70s that then saw some people try to come together and reestablish, reconstruct these things. Because we did have the rituals, like we had the material, we had the, uh, the diaries, we had, we had an idea of how these things were done. But when it comes, and, and there were um, living people that knew Crowley, like Grady McMurtry uh, was a direct disciple of Crowley, uh, that eventually went on and reconstructed the DOTO in the, in the United States. And the DOTO you can join today uh, don't but <laughs> if you if you want to if you want to do that um that's what you're going to do you're going to join the the audio that was reconstructed by grady mcmurtry mm -hmm. um this is i think it's important because i think i really like to kind of demystify the ideas you have around these groups because it's not important the group is not important really as i said at the very beginning what's important is your attitude towards magic and how much you want to invest in it how much you're going to be consistent about it Yes, having a mentor is very useful, right? Um, but I would say that if you think that, you know, you need somebody to put your hands on top of your head and pass something onto you, that's true for certain lineages, but not for all. And you can still do it on yourself because at the end of the day, true initiation comes from what we call the Holy Guardian Angel, your higher self your better self, you know, the, the ones that teaches you your true will. And that is God, that is the divine, okay? Um, you can learn how to get in touch with the divine without anybody putting hand on you and say, hey, now you're first degree, now you're second degree. Um, in fact, in my experience, and I wrote extensively about it, uh, if people are curious, um, they can find on Medium my story of why I left the in general, my experience is every, every hierarchical group tends to bring nepotism and, 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 and abuse. And you don't want that. <laughs> like, we have enough of that in our day-to-day -day lives, I think. You know? <laughs> so it's like, do we, do we want more of that? I don't think so. <laughs> so, so moving on to um, so Crowley, I mean, although like, studying all these religions, and what he did, he was he was he was coined by the media at the times the wickedest man in the world, right? Do you reckon that was down to the fact just the way he lived his life, rather than actually his occult practices or his practices with religions? I mean, so why do you think that was? You got to understand that all the the nicknames that Crowley were given to to him, the work that Crowley received during his lifetime, were given to him by the Daily Mail. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I think that's all we need to say. Like, as you know, as we all live in the United Kingdom, right? We know what it what means, right? But for the, if anybody here is not listening, it doesn't know what the Daily Mail is. Uh, it, it's the rag. It's the worst. It's the worst of the worst, right? It's funny. It's literally uh, they put a yeah, recent UEP article out, which was I just found like astonishing for the kind of. I'm sure it was Daily Mail that came out. It was just like it was kind of totally just out the chart for me. I was like, oh, sorry, on you go. <laughs> No, but the thing is that, like, you gotta understand that um, he was a man that loved to be at the center of the attention. He was a narcissist, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. now, I'm not a psychologist. I mean, I, I, I dabbled in it a little bit when I was in university, but um, you know, my master is anthropology. Thing is, I cannot really diagnose anybody, nor I can diagnose a you know an historical person. But you know, like, kind of sees that there was a lot of narcissism in him. Like most geniuses are narcissistic mm -hmm. to a degree. 
Um, and he loved to be the center of the attention because uh, he thought that, you know, you know, as as with Oscar Wilde, like every um, all sorts of publicity is good publicity. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, <laughs> like you know, he maybe he, he never really realized how bad it, it was for Oscar Wilde at the end of his life, right? Uh, <laughs> had to be exiled, etc. And Curly kind of went that way because he loved to shock. He was a very he lived a very libertine life. He was very promiscuous in his sexual uh, escapades with men and women alike, often together. He wrote obscene poetry and he published it. And by obscene, I mean obscene by our today's standards. Uh, if you, if you, I, I dare you or anybody listening to read Lea Sublime without having a little bit of a reaction to it, because it speaks about scatology. And, um, <laughs> and uh, he was he was engaging with it with his practices and if when we read you know his diaries the diaries of Lea Hirsig which was one of his partners maybe one of the most important maybe the most important of his partners is it is it true that engaging, he, sorry is it, is it true just come back to his poetry is it true that some of his kind of first uh, as in like uh, more kind of rude poetry he couldn't even publish it in the UK it had to be published abroad oh absolutely absolutely most of his book uh, after the Cambridge period, so after like he was he was in in his like early twenties, were published in France, like Magic Interior in Practice, mm -hmm. uh, the first edition is Le Presse, which was published in France in Paris. Uh, he couldn't publish things yet Be because again, also in his magical uh, practices, he speaks kind of openly of sexual intercourse, magic with the K is spelled with the K because yes, he wanted to differentiate it from you know, illusionism, like stage magic. Yeah. Also, he wanted to define that tool to define you, know, to discover your true will, as we discussed at the beginning of the podcast. But the reality is that the K itself is a giveaway to that if you know, you know, it, it, it speaks of sex magic. K, it's ktes, which is a great, uh, it's Greek term for vulva. The idea that you know the holy grail really it becomes like the vulva that has to be inserted by the phallus and the union of the two create the elixir that you have to ingest in order to mm -hmm. um let's say create what you, a much higher um reaction to these magical practices okay mm -hmm. i'm not i'm not giving too much away but you know it's it's also out there right? there's almost no secrets anymore you can find most of it out there. So long story short, I mean, this is why it was, it was dubbed like this because the Daily Mail, which is the rag, right? Like they would, <laughs> they would, they would really shit on everybody. Um, they found the perfect, they found the perfect person. Oh, look at this! This person is so open about you know doing it with everything that reads and using it uh, as a mockery of like religious cults. But you know, that, that, there's also the fact that you know Crowley also went to mock them back in the sense and say like in his diaries and in fact not just in his diaries in 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 one of the notes of magic interior practice which is his magnum opus um it says that the master therion which is by the way the materion ma is again is, is a greek term means the beast so and the beast is the beast of the apocalypse by the way so he was really playing into this uh, into this role uh, and of course this was really getting all the christian fanatics on, on which pretty much was most people at the time right uh, mm -hmm. on their um very scared saying so it says in one of these notes that the, the master therion uh, has killed 
something like let's say hundred thousand child per year in the last ten years. Yeah, I, I and the thing that is means. that what, <laughs> that means he was masturbating a lot. <laughs> that's, that's what it means. But you know, he he would say he would he would write these things to rile people up. Yeah, and uh, you see that and referring, that, to, referring to sperm and stuff, yeah, no, it's, uh, exactly. <laughs> so you know, and you know, like all all his published uh, work is is littered with these ideas, right? And he, that's that's how he, that's how he got he got his name. Um, at the same time, if you if you read uh, the reports of other people of, that knew him, like um, Nina Cunard, which was like the queen of Bohemia. He, he would he would talk of him in high the highest terms possible. Um, a lot of people had a lot of good things to say about Crowley because he was a it was a unique man. He was a fantastic man. He was a larger than life character. He was also somebody that, that treated most of his partners poorly, abysmally, terribly. Um, you know, he left his wife when he started when she started becoming ill and ended up an alcoholic and died. Uh, he abused by and by that by that I really mean I think mentally and possibly sexually um, not possibly and sexually abused uh, one of his disciples and lover at the time Victor Neuberg. Victor Neuberg went to become the guy who discovered Dylan Thomas. So you know, like uh, somebody that actually wrote some beautiful poetry himself, and for the rest of his life, it was very. Um, you know, traumatized by the experience with Crowley. He, he, he could be like this incredibly enlightened individual and incredibly horrible human being. He was a walking contradiction. So in many ways, you know, as somebody who studied him, as somebody who calls himself a Telemite, not a Crowleyite, a Telemite, there's a difference there. Yeah. But somebody that definitely has a lot of respect for Crowley uh, as a magician, I don't have much respect for him as a man because I think that he, in the end, played it he liked it too much to be the wickedest man in the world. And, you know, while part of it was not deserved, because again, it was the Daily Mail trying to demonize somebody who was just living their life, there was a lot of bad shit that he did and uh, unacceptable stuff. Like, Crowley would have definitely been uncancelled in this day and age. And I think he would have been cancelled for the right reasons. Because, you know, all the shit is done to his partners would come out and say, like, we don't want to hear any more from this person. Yeah. yeah. Mm, you know, that's that's the point. So talking about Crowley from a paranormal perspective, what sort of like unearthly influences or experiences that you have? Do you have any experiences that would go into the confines of the paranormal, like maybe visitations or anything like that? I mean, uh, how much time do you have? <laughs> yes, uh, you know, like his diaries are. So Crowley was a was was a, a graphomaniac, and he left us so much um, written material, and uh, most of it, in fact, is a, you you can access it is in various collections around the world. Well, the, one of the biggest one, if not the biggest one, is here in London at Workburg Institute, and. Uh, Despite popular um, tales, you can access it. You just have to know your ways into the Wordberg and knowing what you need to be a member of to access the collections. Mm-hmm. Um, point being is that um, he left us a lot of diaries and he was very good at, you know, he preached this idea that magicians need to keep a very extensive diary of all their operations because keeping the diary creates a timeline that you can always go back to and see what you were doing at this time and and how everything 
pieces together you know in across the your own timeline and so he he is there full of experiences where he was trying to conjure all all kinds of spirits uh using grimoires eventually um in from the nine from the mid 20 20 sorry mid 1910s onwards uh he would start using almost exclusively sex magic by that i mean you know engaging with sexual intercourse getting uh, getting to certain uh trans states with the sexual intercourse and using those trans states to invoke or so calling inside themselves or evoke the spirits of various kind i think one of the some of the most important ones were of course you know back in the day ivas the one that you know gave gave him the book of the law and then uh, this two specific characters came out that were very interesting uh, the wizard Abuldiz and the wizard Amalantra. Those, we know very little of the nature of the spirits, right? They, these spirits were not called in traditional methods. By that, I mean, were not called by grimoire magic. And grimoire magic, I mean, let's say there's a lot of specific tools and specific um, steps you have to do. This was much more like a freeform way of calling spirits, right? And these spirits gave Crowley a lot of insights on, on not just his life or what he, what he would what he would do to promulgate, keep promulgating well, you know, the law of Telema, the system of Telema in the world. Now, I think that the, the wizard Amalantra is possibly the most interesting of them all because it came out in a very specific time of, of Crowley's life when he was really undergoing some very high initiations. So he was like, trying to become more and more of a, an awakened master, if you, if you want to use this term. And truth, the, the, you know, this, the story goes that out of these Amalantra workings, a very famous painting came out. This painting is a painting that's been called Lam or The Way. Mm-hmm. And it's the painting that pretty much represents what we would call today um, kind of like a, a a gray an alien gray like you know uh an almond shaped head big head very, in this case with very tiny eyes compared to the you know, the, the big eyes that you have in the grays very tiny mouth and um, especially one of his disciples that went to become a very famous magician by himself an adept called kenneth grant would use lamb and so so let's say like the 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 fruit of the amalanta working as the focus of his own brand of Telema, which will become called Tifonian Telema, which is literally focused on the idea of connecting uh, with other intelligences, opening uh, you know, gates to other universes and uh, mingling with whatever comes out, right? Kenneth Grant would use a lot of um, you know, inspiration from Lovecraft and the uh, Cthulhu mythos in it, which gave him a lot of shit over the years because, again, uh, serious occultists do not talk of UFOs and do not talk of, of Lovecraft <laughs> because apparently uh, it's okay talking about demons and angels, but, you know, as soon as you start talking about you give them different names, it becomes, oh, no, no, you don't do that. It's also important to notice that when we look at the the painting uh, of Lam, which I don't know if you will be able to put it on screen or just yeah, if you just Google it. I'll put it in the show notes. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you just Google it or click okay, on the show notes. Yeah, you put it up when I'm doing it. Made it in the enemy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you look at it, it also really, if you look very good at it, <laughs> it also 
seems something else. It seems like a, a phallus entering an anus. <laughs> you know, so it, it also looks like that, right? And it was that kind of uh, magical, uh, that kind of sexual inter intercourse was used in the Amalanta working. So was Crowley just, you know, pulling our legs? Or maybe there's something to be read into it. Um, I think there's something to be read into it, especially when we read is Crowley's final um, masterpiece, The Book of Thought, which on the surface is a book about tarot. Uh, in fact, it is the, the final understanding of all the system of Telema. And if you want to have a little bit of insight in this, you should go and read the chapter on the tower. Um, go and read the chapter on the tower, then look at Lam. Maybe you can have some insight on what they were doing there and who they were calling. Um, I work with Lam extensively. Um, it, is, it is a gateway. Uh, it is definitely an entity that, it's not so much an entity you talk to, it's a vector. It's something that you can conjure and you can tr transfer your consciousness inside and then use it almost like a spaceship to go somewhere else mm -hmm. and you know interact with whatever other consciousness is on the other side wherever is this other side by the way right um it's definitely one of, of the magical practices that i've been mostly fascinated with most of my life and I'm, it's been part of my magical practice for 20 years now um had i it's interesting Crowley never really tells us more like we have the diary of the, the amalanta working mm -hmm. we don't have any reference in of lam in it we only have kenneth grant um words that says you know Crowley swear by it that you know gave him and say this is lamb it comes from there and of course the timeline is right you know the amalanta working was happening late 1910s that's when he picked it when he, he painted it uh we draw it it's not it's not a painting it's a drawing and uh, but you know that's that's all it's all about you know trying to find if there's more to it i think there's more to it plenty of other magicians had the same experiences so again if you want to have a little bit of insight try and read uh the book on the tower about uh and Maybe you'll find something. But bringing it back to Scotland, because um, it's Scottish Paranormal Podcast, as you know. Of course. <laughs> um, so, Bolskeen House. Oh. Um, why was it, do you reckon the location of Bolskeen was quite important for Crowley? Or, um, so, so Bolskeen House um, came, I mean, it appeared in Crowley's life um, by chance. So, we're now back into the late 1800s, early 1900s, okay? Early 1900s. And Crowley was still a very keen mountaineer at the time, right? So he would go on, on vacations and he would go climbing. Mm -hmm. He would go to foyers a lot for climbing, okay? Mm -hmm. Apparently, there's a lot of mountains there. And I, you know, I've been in, I, I will admit I've been in Boleskine once many, many years ago, but it was really like a touch and go. And, and of course, I couldn't get in because it was privately owned at the time, still yeah. is. Uh, like he, they, they really didn't like any kind of people. So, you know, I cannot say I haven't been, I, I didn't stay in foyers much, but, um, Curly apparently used to go to foyers a lot to climb. And at the same time, he was looking for a specific, um, house where he could conduct something called the Abramelian operation. Mm -hmm. The Abramelian operation is almost like the, 
the Nomen Plus Ultra of the magical operations. Pretty much every magician have heard about it. I would say a lot of people that, uh, that love um, horror movies have now known about it because a beautiful movie came out, so, out some years ago called A Dark Song, mm-hmm. which is the best representation of ceremonial magic ever. Like, um, it's incredible how good it is. Uh, one of my good friends worked in it as um, in, in the photography, uh, but she didn't tell me after many years. Uh, and 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 she and then you know when when we discussed it, uh, she told me that, that the director has an interest in magic. So you know that's what gets the point. So if you if you're curious to see what the the not so much what the Abramelian operation is, because there's a lot of, um, it takes a lot of um, shortcuts to show, you know, uh, this this magical operation. But in general, if you want to see what that would entail, that is, you know, secluding yourself in a specific house that has, that has to have some specific rooms, um, that I, and then you must be alone with no contact with, with everybody uh, from the outside and just stick to it for, it says tradition cruelly, cruelly thought for six months more modern translation of the uh, grimoire says 18 months in fact when i did it i did it for six months and it worked anyway so maybe the time it's not so much how much it is but the fact that you again you are away from the world for a while right and only with with, you know, with magic and the thing is that he was looking for the best house to do this operation and so he was climbing foyers and lo and behold, um, lo and behold he, he looks on the other side and he sees this house, which was Boleskin. And Boleskin was apparently like perfect. He had like the, the, the oratory, everything was like, like perfect. So Crowley at the time was a millionaire, as we said before. He goes there and I'm now you know, reading from um, Perdurabo, which is the best uh, biography of Crowley, again, by Richard Kaczynski. He says that he rang the owner, Mary Rose Burton, and explains his interest. She told him Boleskin was not for sale. He insisted that he must have it and offered her 2,000 pounds, twice the market value. She said they had a deal. So by the way, 2,000 pounds at the time was 85,000 pounds of today's money. Mm-hmm. He got it for nothing because yeah. last time, um, last time the ruins of Boleskin House, because as you all know, it went up in flames twice yeah. in recent years. Um, the ruins of Boleskin House were both um, by that, what the people that then you know went up to f- put together the Boleskine House Foundation, which I have a lot of things to say about, but I won't in this podcast. Um, they bought it for something around half a million, from my from what I've heard. So you know, eighty five thousand pounds, kind of a steal for you know Boleskine House, right? Um, and so that's that's why he he he, he ended up there. He, he never he never thought that Boleskine had anything to do. So, you know, like um, there's a lot of these stories you find online, you know, he, he wanted to get there because he knew there was like a magical fulcrum of power. I mean, of course, it's on Loch Ness, which is a weird place. <laughs> and I would say any big lake is a weird place because a lake really is a mirror, right? And a mirror really is portal between dimensions like things can come in and out of a mirror things can come in and out from the depths of the of the ocean depths of a lake so Loch Ness is also for the monster right it's definitely it's definitely a weird place but Crowley didn't didn't know it I mean I think that the Loch Ness monster was not um, photographed till way later anyway and um, he didn't think of it as a place that was magic it was Bleskin Bleskin was the perfect house Mm -hmm. he has 
all the all the right uh, rooms, and it was executed enough for him to to go away from the world for six months and do this operation. It's interesting to say that he never ended, he never finished it, right? Uh, because three months in or four months in, he was called back to London, and he decided that he he, he had enough. Pretty much, he would go. This is also where other legends come around. Like now, and all the area now is haunted because Crowley uh, never finished this operation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's not the case, right? The operation you you in in the traditional grimoire of Abermelian, you pretty much purify yourself for six months. At the end of this, or, or eighteen months, in fact, as it says the origin, the real translation. At the end of this, you. Uh, you're granted the union and the knowledge and conversation with the Holy Guardian Angel. You become one with God, okay? And what the angel tells you to do is to bind every demon. And by demons, it's complicated, but let's say they're spirits of the underworld. They're spirits of, they're not, they're not, they're not celestial spirits. They're spirits of what, what's behind the world, okay? Mm-hmm. The thing is that Crowley never got to that point, okay? So Crowley never called all the demons to bind them because he never finished it <laughs> so in fact Crowley left when he was you know squeaky clean like uh like a perfect person out of a shower i don't know something like that so the idea that you know like he he never finished the operation so that's what created like that's what what cursed bleskin um there's no magical reasoning behind it uh, but it's definitely true that's a place where a lot of magic has been done so it's definitely true that it's magic the place with 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 a resonance. I also personally think that with the fire, with the with the recent fires, that magical resonance is gone. In the in the book of the law, it is written something, and again, I'm not quoting verbatim, that there will come a time where your house will burn, but it will stand forever in memory. And that kind of to me is a, a, a prophecy that came to pass about Boleskin. Mm-hmm. Um, so does he have any, any magical importance? I, I mean, when I've been there outside, you could feel something, um, but I, you can feel something pretty much everywhere around Loch Ness and you can feel something in, in Edinburgh, you can feel something in the necropolis of Glasgow, uh, a lot of it actually. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, I would say. It, 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 we sh- maybe we should shouldn't give Bleskin too much spotlight. That's me. It's got um, the interesting thing I found about it as well was when I was before I was talking to like Nathan for the Penny Royale, and we're talking about the the Kentucky anomaly and and, and things like that over there. Um, that there is there is an anomaly that runs right up through that bit with Bleskin House as well. Okay, no, it's no as big as. It's not as big as obviously Kentucky because that's like a massive anomaly where like the um the basically the gravitational fields and geometric fields and stuff like that. But the when you, you see the one that runs there's a strip that runs right up through the section where Bolskin is, and that's Bolskin run about the center of it. I mean, so I found that quite interesting. Plus the fact that as well, um, as the crow flies not too far away from there, you've then got like where the Cairngorms and even up there as well, there's like a um one of the, like the theory society they've got like a holy mountain up there as well oh yes yeah, so that's true that's true yeah yeah and there's a lot of kind of i mean like, like the area the area itself is 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 really magical but i personally think it's it's because of the influence of the lake mm-hmm. like 
we don't know what's inside Loch Ness. And no. it's, you know, like, uh, I believe that we should, we should look inside Loch Ness better because, I mean, we're getting to the point where we do have the technology, right? I would really like to see what's, what's in the depths of that place because, like I said, like lakes in, in general have this idea of this liminal space, you know, between, you know, the high and the low, the land and the water. I mean, the liminality of it, it's what makes it powerful magically. Every liminal space is powerful magically. But again, if, if the, you tell me that there's also like a, like, a, like a massive deposit of quartz, like it's, uh, it's under Somerset, then well, that, that's very interesting as yeah. well. So, you know, like the, the places like this tend to have a, a series of, um, you know, things happening at the same time. But in the case of Boleski, like I said, Crowley was, was, was shocked to find almost like the perfect house. He didn't know anything about it. Um, but then again, it doesn't mean that he wasn't, he wasn't like a holidaying in foyers just because he was called there by something else. Like I said, um, we live in a very complex universe and there's so many, what we call synchronicities really are all these threads of fate, all the threads of, 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 of intermingling and intertwining uh, influences that we can never get the full scope of. Right, so <laughs> no, nods, nods, and winks. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah, it's my turn. Yeah, <laughs> could you we'll go back to what we were saying before? Right, yeah. exactly. Uh, could you explain to us the difference between the black and white lodge? You mentioned it before. Yeah, I mean, so one second. Are you okay for are you okay for time? Uh, I do have another twenty minutes. Yes, cool. Yeah. I think I think we can actually. If you need a break of that, just it's fine. Just go for a break. If you need a break or anything like that, yeah, no, no, toilet, no, I mean toilet break or anything. <laughs> uh, I think I think we're good. So, the black and the white lodge really are two concepts that come. Well, it is one concept really that comes from theosophy, right? And the idea really is that there is this um, secret group of ascended masters that have been guiding humanity uh, evolution since time immemorial and for the theosophists time immemorial was you know before the flood flowed back into a mythical past of atlantis lemuria mood is you know pre-diluvian civilizations which may or may not have existed like like I, i'm very agnostic about it i kind of think they have but up until we don't have like scientific evidence I, it's just a theory um, the problem there is that theosophy really had, I mean, they tried to, they were trying to synthesize all the religions into one, but by doing that, they were really bringing a lot of the baggage from those religions into it. And that, and also this strict dichotomy between, you know, the good and good and evil, like, so there, there was a good white lodge of ascended masters who wanted the good for the world, but this good of the world really was pretty much you know, being good Christians in a way, right? Being good, being good uh, and law-abiding members of society. And the, white, and the Black Lodge would be pretty much the opposite. Like everything bad you can think, it's, this is the Black Lodge. If we think of Twin Peaks, right? That's in, you know, in modern times, that's where those concepts came, came again uh, to prominence. I think that 
it's interesting to notice how this concept became popularized uh, by by Lynch and Mark Frost, because Mark Frost is the theosophist, right? It's not David Lynch. David Lynch is is the is the transcendent um, transcendental meditation kind of guy, and the person has a very interesting ideas about a lot of things. But the strict theosophist viewpoint comes from Mark Frost, and um, I don't buy in the existence of this of these two lodges right like i never ever found evidence of it uh and i'm one who you know grew up with twin peaks 1919 in 1990 i was 12 and at the same time i was watching twin peaks and i found crowley for the first time so yeah, it was set up onto this onto this path by by from the very beginning um but never never once i found like the this idea that there is an evil cabal of mystical masters that is counterpoint to a good cabal of mystical masters. I think that everything that, that becomes a dichotomy between good and evil, light and dark, right and wrong, that's where we, we kind of lose ourselves into the illusion of this in incarnation. We live in, as incarnated being, we are steeped into duality. We even when we talk right to ourselves we are talking there's a voice inside of us and there's a reception inside of us right there's never like full union of of, of communication i mean up until up until you get to some more advanced state of consciousness hmm. the point is that everything else it's dichotomy everything else is polarity everything else is me and you good and bad uh, um from our perspective light and absence of light uh, by the way and by that i mean literally like if you turn the light on and the light off there's different states right mm -hmm. so i would say that all of this when all of this is extrapolated to a metaphysical level we lose ourselves in a way we, we kind of lose ourselves in the game we, we don't see we only like look at the finger not at the moon looking at the moon would be learning to get away from these dichotomies and these polarities entirely and learning to in fact experience them both and by experiencing them both and not thinking in a one is you're not identifying with each you can then annihilate them there's one uh one of those holy books of telema called libertsadi belhamus hermeticum which means uh libertsadi the the book of the fish hook or the hermetic fish hook and this idea that it's a treatise on initiation and it is that the fish hook is literally Christ that fishes for initiates, right? Like you say, I will, I will give you, uh, anyway, uh, let's not go there. <laughs> um, point I'm making is that in this book, it says something uh, in the line that inside you, there's one companion and then companion is you, but that companion hears the call of two things. It hears the calls of the highest heavens and hears the calls of the deepest hells and you should experience both and you, achieve, you should achieve both weddings because if you don't you end up thinking that one is you and the other isn't you well in fact we are both and so this idea that this metaphysical idea of that there the white and the black lodge it's a delusion it's an illusion itself mm -hmm. um this might not be a very popular opinion <laughs> for those <laughs> who have not uh, invested themselves too much in into magic also because the idea like we definitely know that we 
that evil exists in the sense that we can see evil deeds being done constantly. I mean, think of, I, I don't know much of you have, have seen the horrors coming from Ukraine. I yeah. mean, uh, it, it's, there's no doubt that that is evil, mm. but that's the evil that man do. Yeah. Okay. Not Shakespeare, but <laughs> I mean, that evil is what you, what we do, the, the acts we do. Once you start transcending humanity, once you start going deeper into magical practices, you real and you realize once you start being closer to the, the union with the angel and knowing your true will, you should have at that point balance your good and your evil side because none of that are real in a metaphysical sense. And so, a black lodge and a white lodge cannot really exist. It's a good idea, mm-hmm. but to me, it really is. A theosophist simplification of the dichotomy of the human experience. Mm-hmm. Um, on that note, this doesn't mean that there aren't people out there, maybe even experienced magicians, uh, experienced mystics, that aren't evil and they they haven't seen this truth of you know the the non-dual truth of existence and they will they they might have assembled themselves into uh, a cabal of evil magician but they're not like the ascended masters right Mm. they're not like this metaphysical evil they're just very much maybe very skilled uh pieces of shit (laughs) um but that that is my experience with with these concepts um in many ways this is i would say this is also what lynch shows you because i mean think about what it says about bob what is bob in twin peaks bob is the evil that man do right like he literally tells you in the in the in, in twin peaks and in twin peaks the return right the idea the idea that that the, the black lodge and so bob and the garmonbonsia all those ideas well those exist because humans detonate the bomb you know and 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 the bomb you know creates this uh, it is instability that 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 has that forces you know the the giant which really isn't uh, at the time part of the white lodge is somewhere at that point he decided okay i need to create the evil that man do because it's there i have to give it a form but at the same time if that exists i have to counterbalance it so this is this is my reading of twin peaks i don't know how we got here <laughs> but there we go just from from um from your, kind of your your own perception of things, um, so from a par- paranormal sense, right? You must, from what you've researched, what you've practiced, and what you've lived, basically. I mean, um, for many years, you must see things through a different set of eyes. For example, when you when you look at the UEP stuff that's going on in the and, and and things like that, or some kind of paranormal things that go on, you know what I mean? So you, you would probably see it as something totally different or something. Is there anything else? That you, is there any kind of things like that you could potentially talk about in regards to, let's take, for example, the UEP thing that's happening now. Um, I see it as a lot different. I don't see it. It's just totally nuts and bolts and stuff like that. And you're you're getting more people these days. Um, they're seeing there's, there's more connection to consciousness to do it than there is to actually to do it. And that's and bolts, ET or, or whatever else, you know what I mean? So... So you know, I think that um, what we are ex- we're, what we are experiencing in, in this day, what we're recording this in at the end of twenty twenty two, what we are experiencing now, what we've been experiencing for a while, is the fact that 
everybody is seeing the same things that we always seen, but we have more internet, we are more interconnected, we talk more about it, and we have our phones always with us, so we're always kind of able to record the experience. We didn't have it in, at the end of the day. Um, what is what is happening to me is I don't really think that there is like a surge, a surge of um, uh, I don't know of awakening, or I don't really think that there are more uh, more ultra-terrestrials, which is a term that I like to use a lot yeah. because I, I kind of makes sense. I don't think there are more now than there were before. I think we are we are talking about it more now. Yeah. I also think that the governments always knew all this because it's been with us since forever. Yeah. And all the, the recent years of disclosure has always been like, it, it's, it, I don't want to say that it's been like a PSYOP because it's a very loaded term, but it, it has been a way that the governments have know that they cannot just deny it anymore. <laughs> because for the longest term, the governments were just denying everything because to the point, we all know that, right? Um, now they know that again, everybody has their phone. Everybody can talk to everybody on the internet. They cannot control information anymore. I mean, they're trying. I would say Elon Musk trying to tank Twitter. Maybe that's one of the reasons. That's yeah. me being very, very uh, conspiratorial at the moment. That's like that as well. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is that, you know, like at the same time, we, they cannot control it anymore. So they, that's how they're like trying to, the oldest discussion about disclosure is becoming. Again, back to Peter Levenda, I can also tell you that, you know, he, 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 what we discussed and um, I mean, we have, I had a lot of, almost two hours discussion on my, on my Twitter, uh, sorry, on my Twitter, on my YouTube channel with him, public. Um, he said that, you know, a lot of people in, um, uh, in the CIA, a lot of people in, in Washington, he knows all of them. He's been working with them for years. Um, a lot of these people are actually really curious and really want to try and discuss it with the world. They didn't want to shut it down, right? Yeah. If you ask me, what what is this? Are, are they aliens? Are they uh, coming from other planets? Are they coming from other universes? Are they coming from other plane of existence? My answer to it is all, all of this at once and more. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. Like, the thing is that each, every time we have an experience with something that's, well, that's ultra-terrestrial, that's the other, it could be anything, really, because we are constantly contacted by everything. <laughs> like I said at the beginning, we, we, we live immersed in a, in a sea of spirit, right? And the spirit, wants to con wants, from time to time, wants to ignore us, most of the times, from time to time, wants to talk to us. Um, one thing that, um, one controversial idea that I have, um, and it's controversial again with Peter, with Lavenda, like we, we don't see eye to eye to this. Um, I don't think that there's ever a bad spirit contacting you. I don't think in bad aliens, I don't believe in bad aliens. But, and so the, the counterpoint is that, so what about, you know, those that feel threatening? What about those who have experience of abduction? And by the way, I'm pretty sure you know that, but I'm going to re repeat it. Like the experience with abductions of the aliens is pretty much the same of the experience of, the uh, of being abducted by the fairies in the 1700s. It's very similar. Again, I don't think it's the same. It's a similar experience. Mm -hmm. Possibly that's what happens when somebody who's not ready to receive a huge download of information. Uh, if you're not ready to that, you, I don't say you go mad, but you, you've... 
you feel it as a violation, you feel it as, a, um, as, a, as an abuse, but is it an abuse? Or it's maybe like the other side just downloaded so much information in you and your, you know, your boundaries are not able to receive it, boom, you explode. Of course, you can say, well, you know, you know fuck you, why you're doing this to me, fine. <laughs> but I really don't believe in metaphysical evil, as I said before, right? Um, I also believe that whoever is on the other side, and by other side, I really mean different levels of, different vibrational levels of consciousness. Yeah can be higher, can be lower, uh, it doesn't really matter. But what's on the other side? Um, some of them will be uh, very advanced. I, I tend to believe most of them are way more advanced than us, but not all, not all of them, because as a magician, you can get in touch with um, spirits like the elementals, which are not as complex as humans. They actually, in fact, you, know, you can work with them and you, they, they can do a lot of things for you because you are on, I don't say on a higher rung of the scale of evolution, but kinda, okay, terrible analogy, uh, you got the idea. But the thing is that some of them, even if they're more advanced than us, uh, they will be just a little more advanced, but still very much more on, a, on an incarnated level, like on, not on a godlike level. Some of them will godlike level. Some of them will be awakened. Some of them will be, you know, what we would call uh, divinities, gods, goddesses, right? So again, it's such like an infinite um, spectrum of possibilities that, you know, if you ask me, so what it is for you, all, 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 all that I can think and all that I cannot think very much is there. So my suggestion is, uh, I would say it is what, learning magic because magic, what, what does magic really does at the end of the day? It gives you your own spaceship. It gives you uh, like the what really magic does, at least you know in the Western esoteric tradition, is the creation of your body of light. Like that, your body of light is your not just your defense, but it's it is your spaceship. It's something that will, can help you navigate these encounters, uh, navigate these uh, in these downloads of information. Like again, uh, Michael Bertillo, which is a very important and famous uh, occultist and somebody I studied with directly, he wrote about the good UFO and the bad UFO experience. And he really makes the point that, you know, the magician has the good UFO experience because he has, you know, built his, their own body of light, built their own uh, ability, their radio as well, the ability to, you know, to de decipher the frequencies correctly. And so if they call something or if they encounter something or if something comes to them they're not they're not scared they're, they will not feel abducted they will feel i mean a good interaction right and maybe this is why from time to time you get you know those abduction experiences are not traumatizing but they're pleasurable um in general i really believe that one of the problems that we have right now is that we did have 40, 50 years of those governments telling us that uh, they're, they're evil and they're there to kill you, <laughs> right? Um, I really, I, I'm pretty sure that a lot of the things that people still see to these days are man-made <laughs> and they're, they're used as, you know, to, to control uh, the population, to instill fear. I think it was Reagan that said that, was it Reagan or Bush? And I remember, like the, the final war will be the war with something that comes from 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 the outside. Yeah, well, he, I'll tell you, I don't have any evidence that what you know what comes from the outside want to kill us. Mm -hmm. I feel that in my experience, what what comes from the outside is curious, 
Maybe from time to time, it's, um, it doesn't know anything about etiquette. Maybe it, from time to time, it can be too forceful. Maybe it can be too much for the individual. But then again, this, this is also what happens in the Bible when, you know, um, what's his name? Um, Moses has, sees God as a, bu- a bush of fire because if God was to reveal himself to Moses in, in Moses in its real form, Moses would just like be blinded forever. See, this, this message just comes again and again. Uh, I, I, do, I do think the... Sorry, cut you off. Sorry. No, no, please, please. Uh, so I, I do think... Um, like the difference between a bad encounter and a good encounter is just fear of the person. I mean, because it's like yeah. you sometimes find you have maybe people who initially had a bad encounter because um, it was the fear factor at the start of it. And then through time, they've learned to maybe experience it a certain way and receive, they'll call it downloads now and information and, and they'll see there's a, a different side to it. You know I mean, and it's maybe a case of, you maybe have some researchers looking at it and saying it's just all bad and some people look at it as oh, it's good and you get people in the middle camp, but it's maybe just a process that people are going through. You know what I mean? I, I, w- I would agree with you, absolutely. Um, I agree. I also, I also think that, I, I mean, I realize that I might be a little bit too much on the everything is good side, maybe because my experience has always been on the good side, but I'm also, I'm also like, not your average person. I, I went to look for this all my life mm-hmm. and I went to look for this always prepared, right? Um, there's been a couple of times when I was younger that I just threw myself into things. I got burned um, and I was like, okay, I need to get prepared. <laughs> like, so every time else, every 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 other time I went to, to do these things, I had, I had good experiences, right? And I'll tell you, most of the times, it's really way less bombastic than what movies make it to be. Um, but what counts to me, for me, is the quality of the information. Like, do you get something out of it? Do you learn something out of it? And in my experience, like the other wants to talk. Whenever they want to talk with us, they want to give us information and information we can use and information that actually it's always been there in in the human history. It's always been there at pivotal moments. So that's it. So last uh, question from, from myself is, do you think there's been a shift of change in people's attitude to magic uh, now rather than in the past when there's maybe things like satanic panic? Do you think the nowadays is a bit more of a positive uh, reaction to magic or do you think there's, uh, this is just maybe as you said before, maybe goes in cycles? So I definitely think that, uh, again, thanks to the internet, thanks to the flowing, freer flowing of information, um, we had more, more curiosity about magic, more ability, especially in recent times, to put together compelling um, pieces of, um, of information about what, what magic is, what we do. So in many ways, you know, I remembered, you know, the '90s when I started going on. I mean, I was, I was, I'm Italian, so I was born and bred in Rome. And um, in the '90s, I was in Rome, um, you know, connecting with my dial-up on BBSs, right? Okay, <laughs> like, get off the phone, get off the phone, right? <laughs> and and you know, like mid mid '90s, I get Netscape, start going, you know, on Barbilith forum. Or, or on Usenet, on alt.magic. You know, there was a lot of discussions going there. I'll tell you, it's always been full of drama, full of flames, full of people like quarreling about everything. 
but I feel like the the granularity of information got better, but the depth of information isn't as good as it used to be. Because possibly because in this day and age, right, like we we are kind of being we've been instructed to consume like bite-sized everything. Like, you know, if you if a video on YouTube is more than five minutes, that's ah, too long. <laughs> I mean, I remember again, 25 years ago now, oh God, I'm old, um, you know, reading for hours on, on very bad screen. You remember, you guys, you were there as well, I suppose. <laughs> like terrible screens, um, you know, on, uh, on, on IRC, you know, there's walls of text and, uh, you know, the depth of information was better, but it wasn't as granular. It wasn't as, as everywhere as it is right now. The lockdowns years gave, gave magic on the, the, the interest of magic, a huge boost, as I was saying in the beginning, right? A lot of people, got interested in that even before that it was like yet another witch revival you know the, the one the first one i remember was when the movie charmed came out in the 90s and now in recent years i mean it's been more the, the witch as a feminist icon came became a big thing of course along you know the me too movement along the, you know, the gender affirming movements it became like a, a big point of discussion all of this it, i think it's i think it's overall better for for the for the magical milieu it's also true that we're all moving targets for a possible escalation in that you know return of the satanic panic which it's been there i would say since 2015 2016. and of course if you think about it what what day is that well what the day where a lot of the world you know went right in uh, went authoritarian went reactionary again mm -hmm. um Again, I don't think so far it has been as bad as what people that were there in the 80s tell me. But I can tell you, I I have a lot of people, uh, friends in, in the United States that are, you know, out of the broom closet, as they say. And some of them are, you know, occult influencers, like apparently I am as well. We all hate this term, by the way. Uh, <laughs> let's say writers, you know, authors, uh, podcasters, YouTubers. Well, in the United States, they, these people maybe had like shit thrown on their porch or their, you know, their, their bookshops have been assaulted, you know, things like that. It happens. Um, still, it's not as bad as it was in the 90s. Sorry, in the 80s. Um, but it, it, it is out there. <laughs> it is out there, definitely. I want to be cautiously optimistic against all odds because really the lockdown years were really good for this community um a lot of people came together uh, a lot of things kick-started zoom helped massively you know um and if we're if we're if we're able not to destroy ourselves as a civilization in the next few years uh which still 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 out there as a possibility they've given us, um, a, few, they've given us a few years <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, like, I, I, I want to end this on a positive note, right? Like I said, um, it is we have to be always on the watch for any reactionary, you know, train of thought coming under the spotlight again. And the satanic panic is, is, is it right? It's, it's the most obvious of them. But overall, I think we're, we're still in good shape, and we are, we're nowhere as bad as it was in the eighties. Mm -hmm. So hopefully. 
we can come to that. And I don't know. In the meantime, maybe we can have we can have like full disclosure or whatever that is. Yep. Or maybe we can have our uh, you know our friends in in the other come come to us in, a, in even more uh, more numbers. Because I again, I really I don't want to say I believe. I know mm-hmm. that that's the key for human evolution. That's what's going to happen next. And this is not to say that we humans cannot do things on our own. That is to say that we humans have to remember that we've always been part of something bigger. Yeah. And that something bigger is our birthright. And that's what magic is, the birthright of humanity. Marco, you've been a fantastic guest and I appreciate the time you spent with us tonight. So if you'd like to, um, just before, what do you say? Bye as well, Mark, and then we'll get uh, Marco if you want to let us know where people can find yourself, find um, your, your, your obviously podcasting site on Twitter, and obviously your book and stuff like that as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, so people can find me on magic at macrovisconti.org. Uh, that is my website. Um, everything is there, like <laughs> all the links, uh, uh, all, 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 all everything is there. Um, Right now, I am in the mid of the first cohort of my new revamped course. It's going to end in December. And so pretty much like, yeah, you can sign up to, to the community, but there is not much to do at the moment. Uh, but yes, feel free to join if you want. Um, and then, you know, like the, I always rerun these courses. So that, you know, if you join the community, you're going to, be, you're going to have a chance to, to rerun the course when, when I went in the next cohort. I'm also putting together a new course on the Thought Tarot. Uh, and the idea is that to have like 22 weeks, each week is going to be one major arcana and we're going to go deep into understanding, you know, all the magical secrets in each card and how you, and how you're going to use it to visit the words that are hidden in the card. So, you know, we want to say like using your, your body of light as a, as a spaceship, pretty much that's it, what we're going to do. Um, and the book is coming out in, uh, on the 14th of, uh, February, 2023 for San Valentine, apparently. Uh, so it's going to be the perfect Valentine gift. It's all red, perfect for Vassan Valentine. There's also a very, um, a very boobed Baphomet uh, on the on the cover. Uh, you can already pre-order the book on Amazon. Uh, find my name, Marco Visconti. If you look for Marco Visconti Telema, you'll get to the book. <laughs> so um, that's it, really. It's been a pleasure. Um, I hope I didn't bore um, bore you to, to too much with all my rambles. Not at uh, all. We covered we covered a lot of ground, <laughs> but it's 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 been a good one. <laughs> yeah.